as we pick up the story, this is a narrative, so it's helpful at times, perhaps weekly for some of us, to, to do that previously on sort of thing that you, that you see with any uh, TV series that's trying to catch you up to speed. Um, as we pick up this morning's passage, Jesus, Jesus has just shared the Passover with his disciples, the last in a long line of Passover meals, uh, looking forward in anticipation to a future hope. Jesus would soon prove to be the fulfillment of those Old Testament types and shadows, the true Passover lamb, innocent without blemish or spot, soon to be slain that the angel of death might pass over you and, and me. A meal not only looking back to the redemptive work of God in the story of the Exodus, but two, looking ahead to the redemptive work of God in the, the greater Exodus that Jesus would establish by his blood. And with the, the sharing of the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the inauguration of the new covenant, the breaking of bread in that sacred moment symbolic of the body of Jesus that would soon be broken, the cup symbolic of the blood that he would soon pour out at Mount Calvary. We'll get there soon enough. Candles of Passover giving way to, to a, a darkened silence of sorts in the upper room. Judas the betrayer not only having gone at this point to finalize the details of his betrayal, but, but two, Peter's denial now predicted as well. A precursor to the, the loneliness that Jesus would experience that very night, the second Adam in a garden of his own testing. As you pick up the story in verse 39 of Luke chapter 22, Luke tells us and. He, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. As Luke told us at the end of chapter 21, Jesus and his disciples would retire in the evenings to the, the Mount of Olives uh, with the many others around the time of Passover, seeking to escape the uh, the large crowds in the city at night. The other synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, helping to fill in the details and declaring that this scene takes place in the now famous Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus commands the disciples to pray against temptation, we, we don't get any more clarity as to what that means. Perhaps the temptation to sin on their part, perhaps a, a moment of testing to come. Jesus' instructions in accordance with how he had taught the disciples to pray, going back to the final words of the Lord's Prayer in chapter 11. And lead us not into temptation. A prayer of protection. Protection for which only those who, who know they're vulnerable would, would dare ask. On the heels, mind you, of the argument among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Verse 41 goes on to tell us, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Here we get a, an incredibly unique window into the heart of Jesus. An agony like nothing we've seen up to this point in Luke's gospel account. The same Jesus, consider this, who had on more than one occasion predicted his death and fearlessly nonetheless set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
The same Jesus who had earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples, though he knew the symbolism that he was the true Passover lamb whose blood would soon be slain. Here, greatly distressed and troubled, Mark 14 tells us his soul sorrowful even to death. Luke describing a kind of agony so intense that it doesn't go away even in the wake of the strengthening ministry of an angel of heaven. The word translated agony used here only in the, in the New Testament, which gives us some indication of the uniqueness of Jesus' great distress. His sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling to the ground, which some believe to be metaphorical, meaning that Jesus was pouring sweat like the pouring of blood from a wound, Others believing that Jesus began to sweat actual drops of blood as there's been instances where people have experienced such. What's known as hematidrosis, a condition in which severe anxiety causes the release of chemicals that break down capillaries in the sweat glands, causing a person to, to sweat blood. Which in Jesus' case, uh, if this was more literal, would have caused his skin to become incredibly fragile and sensitive by the time the flogging began. Whether metaphorical or, or literal, these, these verses surely highlight the emotional and physical intensity of the situation as Jesus considers the cup that awaits him. That imagery itself helping us to understand just what it is that causes Jesus such great distress, sorrow, and agony. The imagery of the cup representing the pouring out of the wrath of God. If you go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, you find verses like these. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Another example, Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. For they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. The cup of God's wrath. Father, if you're willing, Jesus says, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew that he would become sin though he knew no sin. That he would bear the fullness of the holy and righteous wrath of God. That he would drink that uh, wrathful cup down to the dregs. That he would know for the first and only time what it was to be forsaken by God. Charles Spurgeon writes of this scene in the garden. He says, since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all that our Lord endured in the place of the olive press when he was crushed beneath the upper and the nether millstone of mental suffering and hellish malice, it is clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, Spurgeon says, I can but invite you to enter the garden, bidding you put your shoes from off your feet, for the place whereupon we stand is holy ground. It's a powerful moment in Luke's gospel account. 
We could never possibly know for ourselves all that Jesus endured in the garden that night. The agony of the thought of bearing the fullness of the righteous wrath of God, of drinking that dreadful cup down to the very last drop. Jesus wasn't seeking to disobey the Father's will and praying that such a cup might be removed from him. But in his humanity, he longed not to drink that cup if there might be any other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That Jesus wanted the Father's will more than anything. Even in the midst of the agony and sorrow of the garden. The second Adam, having come to do what the first Adam failed to do. As Jesus passed the test in obeying God in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Adam had failed the test in disobeying God in the Garden of Eden. The Bible, it's not a bunch of piecemealed stories just haphazardly put together. It's one great story of redemption, and Jesus is the hero from beginning to end. Verse 46 And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice it's the second time Jesus has commanded the disciples to pray in this passage, bookending his own perfect obedience with their failure to obey. In this case, failing to wield the weapon of prayer, though happy to wield their swords, as we'll see in just a moment. Like Adam, having failed their own test. It's an incredibly relatable moment for any of us who know what it is to fall asleep on Jesus, so to speak. He continues, verse 47. While he was speaking, there, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The word translated to kiss comes from the Greek word phileo, which can also be translated to love. A kiss in Jesus' day is in many cultures seen as a gesture of, of honor and affection. Sign of esteem and love and the greeting of a rabbi by his disciple. That kind of prearranged signal meant to identify Jesus in the dark of night, not only one of great irony, but of glaring wickedness and hypocrisy on Judas's part. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you that heartless? Are you that cold and callous? It's a question that would haunt Judas in the hours to come. Verse 49, Luke goes on. And when those who were around around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I'm not sure we can really call it a question, verse 49, because Jesus never truly had a chance to answer not before Peter, identified in John's gospel account, chops off the ear of the high priest's servant, perhaps courageous and, and yet senseless nonetheless. In the words of one scholar, Peter's reaction was natural, the all-too-natural reaction of mere human nature unprepared by prayer. Jesus' response, verse 51, he said, No more of this. 
And he touched his ear, the, the high priest's servant's ear, and healed him. Can you imagine that moment? The healing of an enemy. As Jesus restores the ear of one of the very men having come to arrest him with an aim toward crucifixion. Not only an act of great compassion, but a display of divine power and authority, leaving any and all in the garden that night without excuse. And yet not only the performing of a miracle, but, but too, the fixing of a mistake made by the, the blundering Simon Peter. Jesus, Jesus would go on to say, John 18, uh, 36, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. They'd be chopping off ears if my kingdom were of this world, paraphrase. But my kingdom is not of this world, Jesus would go on to say. Peter, right here in this moment, threatens Jesus' ability to make such a claim with the senseless wielding of his sword. And yet, as is the case with our own prayerless mistakes, Jesus brings healing where there would otherwise be grief and pain. Luke continues, verse 52, Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Consider this, the irony of what's happening in this, this moment. Those having come to arrest Jesus could have done so in the, the light of day. That is, had they not feared the people. Here, treating Jesus like a robber, numbering him with the transgressors, going back to verse 37, all the while proving themselves to be the lawless ones. Right? Jesus' question here, exposing them for having stepped outside the bounds of true justice in seeking to make their arrest in the dark of night. Like a pickpocket in a darkened alley, these men. Jesus exposing his very own captors as the guilty ones. John three nineteen, and This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Here in narrative form, we have an example of that. Verse 54, Luke continues, they seized him that is Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Here, here Luke tells us that Jesus is taken into to custody and led down the Mount of Olives into the city and into the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he would undergo the first of several trials, as we'll see next week. Peter, all the while, following at a, at a distance. Remember, Jesus had predicted Peter's denial earlier uh, that very evening in the upper room on the heels of that silly dispute among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Declaring, I, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter's response to Jesus' prediction in that moment Something of a misplaced confidence, declaring, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Let's go. 
Peter, believing that he would, in fact, have no need to turn again, to use that, that language that Jesus used, in repentance, because he'd never turn away from Jesus in the first place. Trusting in his own strength, believing himself to be prepared for any danger. Sobering warning for, for each and every one of us. The danger of a pride coming before a fall. A reminder of the foolishness of believing that we've somehow graduated past temptation in life. That we can withstand temptation in our own strength. I mean, to Peter's credit, he, he at least followed Jesus to the house of Caiaphas. It's more than can be said for the, most of Jesus' disciples who'd run away and abandoned him at this point in the story. And yet, as Luke goes on to, to tell us in verse 56, then a servant girl, seeing him, Peter, as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him, with Jesus. But he denied it, saying, woman, I, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. The first to identify Peter as having been with Jesus is a servant girl. In a day in which the testimony of women wasn't considered to be very credible. And yet her words prompt the first of Peter's denials as he declares, I do not know Jesus of Nazareth. And then he sat with it for a little bit. This didn't unfold in a moment. Peter sat with his first denial. And the second to identify him as having been with Jesus. A man upping the stakes in terms of the perceived credibility of the witness. To which Peter responds, I am not one of them. In other words, not only do I not know Jesus, but I am not one of his disciples. The third accusation, after sitting for about an hour with the first of those two denials on Peter's part. The third coming from another man in the courtyard who identifies Peter by his Galilean accent. Declaring, certainly this man was with Jesus. The level of assurance of the witness intensifying. To which Peter responds, I don't know what you're talking about. In other words, not only do I not know Jesus of Nazareth, not only am I not one of his disciples, I have no idea of the subject matter of which you're even speaking. Peter would never be able to say that it was all just a misunderstanding. His three times denial of Jesus, incredibly comprehensive and undeniable. Which makes what happens next all the more intense. And immediately, verse 60, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Luke doesn't tell us whether Jesus was being led through the courtyard in that moment or perhaps he found himself in a room looking out on that part of the property. What we are told is that the rooster crows and 
Jesus turns in that moment and looks at Peter, a look that must have pierced right through Peter's soul. When I sat with, with this moment, just in sermon prep, my, my eyes welled with tears because I understand Peter well. Peter reminded of not only what Jesus had predicted in the upper room, but his heart overwhelmed with, with great sorrow. I mean, in one sense, none of us will ever know the, the anguish that Peter experienced that night as he stared into the eyes of the Lord Jesus any more than we'll understand what Jesus experienced that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet there's something at the same time deeply relatable about Peter. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, he says, The best and highest saint is a poor, weak creature, even in his best times. Whether he knows it or not, he carries within him an almost boundless capacity of wickedness, however fair and decent his outward conduct may seem. There is no enormity of sin into which he may not run if he does not watch and pray and if the grace of God does not hold him up. When we read the fall of Peter, he says, we only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume, let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength. We might ask, where's the hope in a story like this? As we sit in this darkened garden, and the answer, of course, is Jesus. It's the answer every week. For one, the hope of the cross, the cup that Jesus would go on to drink, not only for Peter, but for sinners like you and me. As Jesus would soon bear the, the fullness of the righteous wrath of God on behalf of unrighteous, wrath-deserving sinners, a cup that Jesus would drink down to the dregs so that there wouldn't be so much as a single drop left for you or me. More than that, that he might change God's wrath toward us into favor. In Christ, the just, holy, and good wrath of God against our sin fully satisfied. A light of reconcilement shining when the Father looks at us in Christ. It's what makes verses like these beautiful. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, just a big word. Meaning one who would bear the wrath that we so rightly deserve in our place, fully satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. Or how about Romans 3, verses 23 through 25? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, not just Peter, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it is, whom God put forth as a propitiation, a wrath bearer in our place by his blood to be received by faith. Where's the hope in a story like this? For one, the hope of the cross, the cup that Jesus would go on to drink for sinners like you and me. And two, the hope of intercession. Jesus, our great high priest and advocate. Remember, Jesus had not only predicted uh, Peter's many denials, but two had promised, if you look back to verse 32, that Peter would turn again in repentance and would strengthen the other disciples in the days to come. 
that by Jesus' own intercession, Peter's faith would not fail. As we talked about last week, it's the great hope of the book of Hebrews. And with it, the hope that our own faith will not fail. Namely, that we have in heaven a resurrected and high priest who lives to make intercession for us. Who ministers for the church in heavenly places right now. Hebrews chapter 7. Shared this passage last week. Verses 23 through 25. The former priests, the priests of old, leading up to Jesus, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always, always, always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for you by name, for me. Just as he interceded for Peter that his faith might not fail. The invitation this morning is to see the kindness of the Lord like Peter in the face of Jesus Christ. A kindness meant to lead us like Peter to repentance. You may have noticed a little different setup this morning, sitting right in front of me. The bread and the cup. A visual, an opportunity as, as we sat in the Garden of Gethsemane to consider the cup that Jesus would drink. And to know that because he drank the cup that was before him, so you and I can drink the cup that is before us. I... I thought the institution of the Lord's Supper might be the most powerful receiving of the Lord's Supper that we might have in the book of Luke. I think I was wrong. I think this might be it. In a moment, yes, we're going to sing. We're going to take a couple minutes to pause before those first lyrics are, are before us to ask the so what of the Lord in light of our time in this passage of Scripture. And then we'll join in our collective song together, sing the praises of Jesus who's worthy of our praise, our high priest and intercessor, the one who drank the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop for you and for me. We'll also over these last three songs have an opportunity to receive of the bread and the cup. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you not to partake of those elements, but that your next step would be one of turning to Jesus in repentance and trust in him for the forgiveness of sin that can only be found in him. But if you are a Christian, we, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Just consider the imagery of the cup. Take yourself back before you receive those elements all the way to the very first garden. See Adam failing. Look into the face of Peter and see something of yourself. Look to Jesus, the second Adam, who perfectly walked to the cross with a record of righteousness and obedience that he might die on behalf of sinners, the sinless one. That you and I might not only be able to enjoy a cup like this, and all that it means, but might be spared of another cup.